We are continuing in our study of every verse in the letter of 1 Corinthians written by Paul to Corinth from Ephesus after he had spent 18 months there in Corinth beginning a brand new work. Spent some time with Priscilla and Aquila, made tents to help support himself as we'll refer to in a few minutes, and then grew that church from the ground up, pouring himself into the work and creating a brand new congregation, starting first by ministering in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And when in bulk, the Jews refused to listen to Paul, he decided to take that good news of Christ to the Gentiles. And most of the new believers there in Corinth were Gentiles, although there were a few Jewish converts that started to join in that new movement in Corinth. To introduce the idea of what's going to be a thread that started to come into my mind this week as I was living with this passage, I was brought back to a not so pleasant experience a couple of years ago. I was in the dentist's chair. I hope this is not a trigger for some of you just looking at this picture, but I was there getting a, a, a little extra work done on a filling that was starting to fall apart. They needed to fix the filling. And the dentist said, fortunately, this one is not in there very deep, and I just have to take out the old filling and put a new one in. So if you're okay with it, I think I can do this without Novocaine. Uh, there doesn't need to be any anesthetic. And I said, absolutely, the quicker we can get out of here, the better, let her rip, doc. And he let her rip. He started drilling away, and then all of a sudden, there was this zing, and every muscle in my body tensed up, which was a signal to him that perhaps he'd gone a little bit too deep. He said, sorry about that. And my response was, wow, that will remind you that you're still alive. And he had a good chuckle about that, but he knew he would uh, not do anything more because he had drilled enough and then he put in that new filling. And all was well, and I had a tooth that worked after drooling for a couple of hours, so it was okay. But there was that nerve that got touched and I say that because as we start to read the passage that we're studying today, we can see that somebody probably touched a nerve in the Apostle Paul. And our job as we look at this passage today is to try to discern what specifically was that nerve? What was all about why Paul got so passionate in 1 Corinthians chapter 9? Let me read it to you, and then we're going to start unpacking it together. I'm reading 1 Corinthians 9, 1 through 18. This particular reading is from the NIV. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment of me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brother and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? Do I say this merely on human authority? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, don't muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. 
Is this about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple and that those who serve at the altar share in what is offered at the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. But I have not used any of these rights. Am I not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me? For I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast since I'm compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I'm simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge and so not make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we ask you right now for you to be our ultimate instructor because your Holy Spirit has promised to bring to mind all these things that you have taught us through your word, if we have been studying your word, and to guide us into all truth. And it's truth that we're after today. And so thank you for guiding us into truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is the very last word in this passage? Depending on which translation you have, a vast majority of the translations, that word or words, are the gospel. Let that sink in just a little bit, because I think that's going to be the first good clue as we look for other clues in this passage about what that nerve was that we're looking for in the Apostle Paul. Now, it's time for a wee scone break. I put that out. Uh, hopefully some of you got your scones ready. Uh, I have my sweet little teacup here, because I just want you to know that uh, my wife is trying to turn me into a civilized man, <laughs> and I know how to hold a teacup and to lift my pinky. Mm, it's very good. Just right. So if you happen to have a scone or a cracker or a biscuit, uh, perhaps some shortbread, this would be a good time to break that scone break out. And feel free and enjoy a bit of that uh, sumptuous flavor together as we spend some moments together, and then we'll get back into the passage. The reason I say that is because this is purposeful. It came to mind as I was thinking back to the very first time our family was in Scotland on sabbatical in the year 2000. This family that you're looking at here became good friends with us while we were there. Their name are the Dimsters, John and Lorna and their two daughters. Callie became friends for a while and got to play with their daughters as well. We had a good time and on one beautiful afternoon, they said, would you like to go on a wee walkabout around one of the nearby locks? And we said, that would be lovely. Now, you have to understand that where I'm coming from, when somebody says a walkabout, I had been used to going on hikes to different places with my friends in high school and college. Now, when we went on a hike, 
we went on a hike. We would set our standards high and then try to beat our goal and get there quicker than we thought it was supposed to take. And we worked hard so that there would be a lot of effort expended. And that way, when we finally arrived at our destination, we would be rewarded so we could say, we did this, look at the reward. But when we went on this walkabout with the Dempsters, I think they had a different goal in their minds compared to the goals that I used to have in my mind when we would go on a walkabout. Their goal was to meander and to amble and to walk slowly and to notice little things along the way and to pick up flowers and remark about them. And when they got back to the car, I was ready to go somewhere else and do something exciting and perhaps discover something new in Scotland. And they had brought along a wee snack and they had some shortbread and they had some tea and they poured from a thermos the tea and we clearly weren't done with our walkabout yet because the goal, mm, oh, that's nice, isn't it? Their goal was not about expending tremendous energy so that we could claim the reward for that beautiful scenery that we arrived at. Their goal was to develop a relationship and we did. In fact, we've kept that relationship going so much so that we were able to rekindle that relationship last summer on our sabbatical. And we went to the, uh, a little fair at Bewley, the bright Bewley Fair near Inverness in the Highlands of Scotland and got to catch up with them and with their dog. Had a wonderful time and we sat around in their living room and chatted it up and spent good time rekindling a good relationship. That purpose that they had in mind on our first walkabout took. It really grabbed hold of us because we got to know each other well enough that we could talk about any subject freely. Second little story on our wee tea break here. This man that you're looking at is a pastor in Tecumseh, Michigan. Richard Mortimer is his name. I've known him for years. He's a brother in the Lord, a fellow preacher, and a good guy. He's also by uh, self-definition, a real introvert. And way back when I first got to know about Richard, some other ministers in an association that I belonged with had said, Richard is an erudite scholarly expositor of scriptures. And what they were saying by that was, he's not a charismatic personality type by nature. He's not what some would call a stim winder preacher. It's an old phrase. He's not going to wind people up to froth them up because of his frenetic tendencies, but you'll learn a lot and you'll learn deep things of God in the way he preaches and teaches. However, after I'd gotten to know him and was in that association with monthly meetings for a long time, something happened that changed the tone of Richard's preaching. He and one of his sons were involved in a terrible car accident and he was in the hospital and it was nearly deadly. But when he emerged from that hospital, the tone of his preaching changed significantly. All of a sudden, he was preaching as a man who really believed in what he was saying. There was something different because he had a relationship in mind and he wanted to guide people into the same relationship that he had with a living, loving God the God who prepared a place for him so that if he had died, he would have been with God in his presence forever. The God who cared enough to walk with him through that trial and to bring him out on the other side. 
Something changed because a nerve was struck in a good way with Richard Mortimer. I actually attended a funeral of a friend of ours and I heard Richard speak and he spoke as a man who had been touched in some way. There was something passionate about his preaching. He honestly believed that the man he was preaching about was in heaven at that moment. How could he preach with such passion when he had been so stoic previous to the car accident? Because he had met the Lord personally in a much deeper way than some people have, and it showed. Now, you may be thinking, hmm, what is it exactly that we're trying to get out of these stories? We need to get back into the passage, don't we? We're going to get there. Maybe it's a need for you to slow down a little bit and think about the relationship that we're trying to develop. And that's one of the things that I think the Dempsters did for me. I needed to learn to slow myself down. And so I was slowing myself down this week as I looked through this passage, rather than racing through it, trying to look for three points and a poem. And I saw that in the verses 12, 14, and 16, twice in verse 16, and twice in verse 18, Paul uses the term, the gospel, again. And that kept jumping out at me because that showed up often in just the first 18 verses of chapter 9. Are we done yet? Some of you are probably getting antsy. I could just imagine some of you twiddling your thumbs or tapping a pencil on a desk, thinking, when are we going to get back into the passage? You've taken us away so that we... Oh, wait a minute. Mm. Oh, isn't that good? That's so lovely. When are we going to finish the scone break? Well, there was an interruption to a hike. In my mind, it was an interruption. It was actually the purpose of the Dempsters. And I came away with a different attitude because they were all about relationships. Interruption for some of us becomes an interruption that takes us away from what we think our goals are supposed to be. And many of us have felt like this whole pandemic has been one gigantic interruption. Perhaps, just perhaps, God is asking us to slow ourselves down a little bit and to rekindle a relationship with him by slowing down, breathing deeply, paying more attention to the details in his word, and listening more than we're talking. May I suggest that some of us may be in need of a shift in goals? Shifting ourselves from thinking that we need to frenetically exert a ton of energy so that we can claim the reward when we finally arrive at the destination we have in mind, and rather to think that we need to sit quietly and bask in a relationship that continues to become deeper. Let's look back at this passage. Some of you are going, it's about time. I'll pray for you. Four questions Paul begins with right off the bat. And in those four questions, he includes two proofs of his apostolic authority or his credentials. He says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Well, the two proofs of his apostolic authority are, I've seen the Lord. Have I not seen the Lord? He's asking a question that's rhetorical. Clearly, the answer to all these would be an assumed yes, of course. When did he see the Lord? Well, he kind of saw the Lord. I'm sure he's alluding to that road to the Damascus experience. And he had the experience when he was blinded by a bright light. He heard a voice. He couldn't see anything yet, though. 
And he heard that voice that said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he's saying, well, who is that? And it says, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. He still couldn't see. He was blinded. People had to lead him into the nearby town. God calls Ananias, a different guy, who said, you need to go and see this guy, Saul. He's located at this specific place. And Ananias is going, oh, wait a minute. I've heard about that guy. He's the person who's been having all of us arrested. Are you sure you want me to go and see him? God says, yes. Ananias goes there. He touches Paul. In that instance, I'm saying Saul and Paul interchangeably, same guy. Suddenly, things like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see clearly. So Saul really had an experience that changed his life. That was when he was touched because of a personal experience with the Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, haven't I seen the Lord? That was one of the criteria for becoming an apostle, somebody who had actually met the Lord, and he had met Jesus Christ. And then he says, you believers are evidence of my apostleship. He's saying, those of you that I'm writing to in this letter who are a part of the church in Corinth, the fact that you are believers gives proof to the fact that there was a spiritual work happening through the Holy Spirit, bringing to life the truth of the gospel, which I shared with you. You are the proof of my apostleship. And he's saying, maybe there are some others who don't think that I am worthy of becoming called an apostle. These may have been Judaizers, some of the Jews that he tried to reach in the synagogue, but refused to be reached. And maybe they were trying to stir up trouble. There were probably some Judaizers who were trying to infiltrate that new church with the Gentiles and were trying to insist that they continue to do things in the way that they used to in terms of their living by the law. But there were some people who clearly were casting dispersions on Paul's authority. And he says, you're proof that I'm an apostle. And then he switches things up. You would almost expect logically that Paul would start to expound on why they were criticizing somehow his not receiving monetary aid or food and drink and housing while he was there in Corinth. And yet he starts by flipping that on its head. He's using some sort of a, a logical progression as to what he's doing there. And I think there's something else happening with Paul too. I think that he's also building the case for the fact that there are many other missionaries that are going to be needing this kind of support and that he's not the only one because it was not all about Paul. There was going to be Cephas or Peter. We know that he was married because we know that Jesus had healed Peter's mother-in-law. And we also know that there was uh, the brother of Christ, that would be James, who wound up becoming a great preacher and leader, the pastor of the church in Jerusalem that became huge. And there was Barnabas, there was Timothy, uh, Silas. There were other missionaries that Paul was interacting with that knew they were going to be needing support from fellow believers if they were going to be able to travel from place to place and establish new works and appoint elders and train them and pray for them and set them off to do the work of the Lord. So he switches things up. Instead of defending why he didn't take support while he was there, he reverses it and starts with, this is my answer to those of you who question my authority. Don't we have the right to live in your homes and share your meals? Don't we have the right to bring a believing wife with us as the other apostles and the Lord's brothers do and as Peter does? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have to work to support ourselves? Interesting the way he starts to address this by broadening out the scope into these other missionaries. And then he starts using some examples. He starts with some secular examples and then he moves to things that would be more applicable to the Pentateuch or the first five books in the Old Testament for his Jewish audience. 
he starts with the secular example. He says, soldiers, you don't see soldiers having to raise their own support, do you? <laughs> they don't work with no support at all. They do their work and they get paid for it. How about vineyard workers? If you send people out to pick grapes, they don't have to go to the local grocery store to buy grapes. They should be allowed to eat some of those grapes as a part of their reward for their hard work, don't you think? Or the shepherds, they don't go out to the dairy farm or to their local grocery store to buy goat's milk. It's right there for them. They should be allowed to eat some of that goat's milk. And then he says, for those Jews among them, for the law of Moses even says, you must not muzzle an ox to keep it from eating as it treads out the grain. The oxen would be attached to these uh, yokes and they would be going around in a circle as you would know. And that would be one way that they could tread out the grain. He said, you're not gonna muzzle the ox and keep it from eating. It needs its strength. So why not eat from the grain that it's actually treading out? That just makes sense. They should be rewarded. And then he says, this isn't just something that's talking about oxen. This is a metaphor for us. That's not just for oxen, it's for us. Those of us who are doing spiritual work deserve physical reward. We think that we should share in the harvest of the gospel as well. If you support others who preach to you, shouldn't we have an even greater right to be supported? Clearly, there was the idea that if somebody was coming in from another town, somebody would offer their home for them to stay in. They would offer them a meal. Perhaps they would even send them to another house to eat and then bring them back over again because it was all about building relationships with these people who were starting to bring the gospel into that church. He says, if others would preach to you and you would give them that kind of thing, wouldn't we even have a greater right to that because of our history among you? I'm sure he was bringing to their minds that history of 18 months when he was there with Aquila and Priscilla in their home and probably in many other people's homes as well, making tents so that they could sit there and do work with their hands and talk about things of scripture, things about the Lord, the real experiences with each other. But as they worked, he switches up the argument. Then he gets to this part where he says, but we have never used this right. He's starting to get to the main point of his argument here by saying, we didn't expect any kind of gifts from you all. I worked because I didn't want to change things up. Why would that be? I think that he understood that money can become an obstacle. He said, we would rather put up with anything than be an obstacle to the good news about Christ. He may have been thinking about the relationships developed with people who were Gentiles, who weren't used to giving a tithe as Jews might have, because the Jews were used to giving a tithe of their food, because that's the way they would support priests, since priests were under a different type of support than we might think of today. You'd say, we would rather put up with anything rather than become, become an obstacle. He was afraid that by going in and presenting the gospel to them and then immediately saying, oh, and by the way, you need to tithe. You need to provide for me so that I can be among you bringing this good news. He's probably thinking that might not go over so well. And so he didn't want to become an obstacle. And so he worked for his own living as he was building up that brand new church. And of course, this was a very early happening. This was something that was just beginning in the very early phases of the New Testament church. So Paul's recognizing that relationships are important. Motive is important. And he wanted them to know that his motive was purely about the gospel. And he wanted to be able to offer the gospel to them at no charge. And then he offers some more Old Testament examples, probably thinking about those Judaizers back in Corinth. Don't you realize that those who work in the temple get their meals from the offerings brought to the temple? And those who serve at the altar 
get a share of the sacrificial offerings? The priest's portions of the sacrifices were considered the tithe. And if you were to look into Israel's history, you'd remember that the tithing started to become neglected along the way. They started neglecting the kinds of things that would help support the priesthood. Well, it's no surprise then that the priesthood waned, as did the faith of the people in Israel on a national scale. It was a big deal because it was disobedience, and the Bible calls it sin. They were sinning by not supporting those who were bringing the work of the Lord and serving at the temple. So we also see that one of the marks of revival under leaders like Josiah and Hezekiah and Nehemiah was the tithe. They became passionate and consistent and faithful in giving that tithe again. So Paul cites Jesus' command as he continues his argument. In the same way, the Lord ordered that those who preach the good news should be supported by those who benefit from it. He's instructing his disciples. This is Jesus as we're looking over into Matthew. They were sent out on a mission. And this was really early when Jesus was training them up to know how to go back into other people's homes and introduce the truth about who Jesus was. And he's saying, don't put some extra coins in your belt. Don't take an extra tunic. Don't take an extra pair of sandals. In other words, pack light because you're not going out there to stay for a long time. You're going to be depending on other people to help provide for you. If you find a person of peace, stay with them for a time. Let them house you. Let them feed you. They're going to become instrumental relationally in spreading the gospel. And so Paul is probably referring specifically to Jesus' command when he says, the worker is worth his keep. So don't worry about it. I'll provide for your practical needs, but you just go out there by faith and share the good news. And Paul says, verse 15, yet I've never used any of these rights. And I'm not writing to suggest that I want to start now. In fact, I would rather die than lose my right to boast about preaching without charge. Yet preaching the good news is not something I can boast about. I'm compelled by God to do it. How terrible for me if I didn't preach the good news. It was so much a part of his DNA. He was so passionate about it that he would die if he couldn't preach the good news because he was all about preaching the gospel. This is Paul's calling. If I were doing this in my own initiative, he said, I'd deserve payment, but I have no choice for God has given me this sacred trust. He can do nothing else except what God has called him to do. So here's what some people have suggested that they think was what got Paul kind of up in the pictures or touched his nerve, got him passionate in this passage. Some have suggested that it was zinged, that nerve was zinged because someone questioned his integrity. Well, that'll do it. And in a personal way, some people can get zinged in their nerve if somebody questions our integrity. I do. Someone also may have questioned his apostolic legitimacy Perhaps they came at it from one way by saying, well, he didn't take any support because he didn't even think he was valuable as an apostle. I don't think that was the case. Someone felt maybe that support shouldn't be given to missionary wives who traveled with their husbands because they think, well, if he's asking us for more money, if Paul is unmarried, all these other missionaries should be unmarried too. There may have been some of that logic trying to play into it. We don't know for sure, but these are speculations. You know what I think? I don't think it was any of these things. I don't think those were the nerves. I think that this nerve was all about the gospel. I think that Paul would rather put up with anything, including not receiving practical support, food, clothing, drink, housing, than to become an obstacle to the good news about Christ. Because he says so a number of times in this passage, and he even ends this passage by saying, 
I don't want to do anything that would become an obstacle. That's what I think. I think Paul understood that relationship was so important and he didn't want to damage the relationship. But by writing all that he did, he's opening the door for all the other missionaries that are out there to say, they deserve the same right too. Just because I chose not to, because I was adaptable, because I'm becoming all things to all people so that some might be saved, just so that I recognize that in this specific instance, it was better for me not to receive support. I may in the future need some different support, but all these other missionaries, they deserve just as much as I do. And so you need to be generous in supporting your missionaries. I'm grateful for a church that supports missionaries. We prayed for one of ours this morning, George Collins and his son, Ben. And I hope that you'll continue to pray for Ben, even today and as you're eating lunch and this afternoon, every time he comes to mind, let's pray for him because today is that, that day for surgery. I think it's important for us to realize that this same missionary work is going on today and we're helping support missionaries just like Paul. And I'm so grateful for that, but let's continue to be generous in our support for them. When did the tone shift? Something shifted in Richard Mortimer after he was on the road and was involved in a car wreck. God, in a good way, sort of wrecked him and brought him out as a new creation, different than he was previous to that. He was a believer before the car wreck, and yet something shifted in his tone. He was a believer who really believed in what he was preaching after the wreck. Paul the Apostle on the road to Damascus and seeing Jesus who wrecked his previous goals. Paul, who was all about meeting the law, who was all about working hard to get to that destination, to earn favor with God so that then he could boast in his reward. And everything you read from that time forward after that nerve got touched was saying, I can only boast in the Lord. I can't boast on anybody else because I am nothing and God is everything. Now with Paul, the gospel is personal. For him, he believes this. Why is that? Because he encountered the Lord Jesus Christ personally. It's no longer about his personal effort. And the gospel is still the most important thing. He writes, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Have you had a shift in your goals from personal effort, thinking that we have to somehow earn God's favor and shifting from that to the idea that your personal relationship with God is what really matters to God? If you haven't, I wanna invite you to make that shift, to understand that it's, there's nothing that we can do to earn God's favor. He loves us just because he loves us. You're precious to him simply because you're precious to him. He loves you enough to die in your place. And so I would hope that if there are some of you who haven't understood that about the gospel, that's at the crux of the gospel. Why would Jesus die? That's the question that needs to be answered. And the answer is because of God's love for you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the shift. It's a shift from earning it to just basking in it because he desires that relationship and he took care of everything for you so that you just need to receive that grace. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that in every one of us who may be tempted to exert effort, we'll just bask in the relationship and that we'll calm down and slow down and breathe more deeply because our relationship with you should be like breathing. And the Holy Spirit that fills our hearts is like air filling our lungs 
and we can breathe in that grace, which you offer so freely, because it's all around us, but if we don't avail ourselves to it, we can be suffocating ourselves through our own effort. Breathe into us the spirit that saves and which continues to give us the awareness of your love for us, a love that surpasses any other kind of love because it was the love that took our place on a cross. Thank you for that kind of great love that motivated the greatest sacrificial gift of love in history, Christ on a cross for our sins. We just want to love you back, Father, because we could never pay you back. Thank you for the shift in tone in Saul and then in the teaching of Paul. Thank you for the missionaries who are continuing to share that good news. And may we be that kind of mission-minded person in our own sphere of influence so that others can sense that love being borne out through our lives to them. Thank you for doing that. In Jesus' name I pray.